Welcome to Almost Here, Round the Corner of Future Technology Podcasts with Richard Jacobs. Future technologies poised to transform our lives for better or worse are the focus of this podcast. Almost Here means these technologies are now here and starting to be used, or just around the corner, from Bitcoin to artificial intelligence, 3D printing, blockchain, virtual reality, and more. Coming to Dallas, Texas, September 14th, 15th, and 16th, 2018, the Blockchain and Future Tech Expo. This is going to be a gigantic conference of over 5,000 people. We're going to be talking about blockchain and its applications. We're going to be talking about quantum computing, cybersecurity, artificial intelligence, and several other future technologies that are poised to and actually changing our lives as we speak. Here's why you should attend. As you may know, early adopters are the ones that investigated and profited from things like the gold rush in the 1800s, from the dot-com boom in the 1990s, from the internet boom in 2005, from the smartphone explosion in 2007, from the real estate boom that ended in 2008, and of course, from the Bitcoin boom that started in 2012. Early adopters act now. They don't wait till later. They go out west first in their covered wagons. They find the biggest gold nuggets. If you consider yourself an early adopter and you want to find the biggest nuggets, then you owe it to yourself to attend this upcoming conference. Blockchain is going to affect how we control and store our medical data, how we send money around the world, how we bank, and more. But artificial intelligence, quantum computing, and cybersecurity will play a pivotal role in our lives as well. And that's why our next event, September 14th to the 16th at the Dallas Convention Center, is going to have not only 5,000 plus attendees, but we'll showcase blockchain, AI, cybersecurity, quantum computing, and more. You want to get in on the coming gold rush of future tech and opportunity as an early adopter. Don't be left out. To register, go to bftexpo.com. That's blockchainfuturetechexpo.com. Thank you. Hello, this is Chris with the Future Tech Podcast. My guest today is Kevin McKernan with Medical Genomics and Canopedia.net. Welcome, Kevin. How are you doing today? Excellent, Chris. Thank you for having me on the cast. I've been enjoying all the discussion of uh, microbiomes I keep hearing on here. Yeah, definitely. Thanks for thanks for being here today. Kevin, give us a little bit about your background and what eventually led you into uh, medical genomics and uh, Canopedia.net. So, um, medicinal genomics was formed back in 2011, uh, and it was I was doing a lot of sequencing of uh, cancer genomes, and there's a long story behind there that you guys can probably find about me online, but I, I basically rage quit my job and decided to sequence the cannabis genome and, and put it public. And in doing so, I recognized there were microbes on the plant and that these microbes probably needed to be screened for. And so medicinal genomics, one of our business lines today is to make quantitative PCR tools that measure these microbial risks. And um, these these surprisingly are important. I know everyone probably hears online that no one ever dies from cannabis, but they ha- there have been cases of people dying from what grows on cannabis. And in particular, there's a handful of microbes like Aspergillus uh, and a few others that have re- resulted in, in clinical fatalities. And so... Um, what we're seeing as these different states legalize is they're mandating different microbial regs, uh, and they vary state to state in kind of a laboratory of democracy setting, uh, and we're addressing those by making quantitative PCR tools that can measure them. 
so quantitative PCR is a little bit different than the way people have done this in the past. It uses DNA to measure the microbes that are there, and the way people have traditionally done this in the food business has been done, doing this by growing them on petri dishes, which is about a hundred-year-old technology. And oh, there's just, there's a host of reasons we can get into as why that that uh, technology is, just needs to die. Okay, what are some of those reasons that the petri dish method needs to go away? Well, the the first thing is that. 99% of the microbes out there, we don't know how to culture them. And this is after a century of trying. So I, I don't, I'm not optimistic that we're going to fix that in the next 10 years. Uh, and I think cannabis is going to grow so quickly that we need to fix it in the next 10 months. Um, so the, the, the cultural problem is one issue. Uh, the other issue is that many of the microbes that are the most harmful, while they might grow on these things, they don't grow in a very quantitative way. Um, you have to imagine... Uh, Aspergillus is one, for example, which makes two different forms of cell structures. One is a uh, conidiospore, which is like a, you have to imagine it's like a bundle of grapes, but it's a bundle of, of like four micron spores. Uh, and you can get a single spore to make a colony on a plate, or you can get the whole bundle to land and make a colony on the plate. And you can't discern whether it was one or a thousand. And this has plagued the industry trying to quantitate uh, a single CFUs, which are called colony forming units, um, with, with an organism like that. Uh, it just clumps. And so you, when you try to make a regulation that says you can't have a single CFU, a lot of people get by with 900 and you don't know it um, because uh, the nature in which this thing clumps, they just miss it when they put it on the lawn and you can't discern one from a thousand. Uh, that's probably the main issue with it. The second issue with these culture techniques is they're not very specific. So oftentimes when you're counting colonies, you're more oftentimes counting benign or beneficial colonies. So most microbes are actually beneficial for you. There's a really rare few that are that are harmful to you. And so a, a lot of the organic growers out there like to use trichoderma and these other microbes that are known to fight off and kill the human pathogen. Uh, and they're also good for root health and other things. Well, those those growers get penalized by using these, these uh, agri dishes because you can't discern whether something is an aspergillus or, or a, a trichoderma or something else. They just they grow a colony. So it's really about speciation. DNA allows you to get down to speciate these things and know what you're measuring. Whereas the the the, the, the films, you count colonies, you don't know what they are. It's kind of like palm reading. Uh, and then you fail if you have too many things in your palm. Uh, and uh, that leads a lot of the growers uh, to take a false directive. They, they're, they're told, all right, you failed for yeast and mold, but it was actually bacteria. Uh, so they go and apply fungicides. Uh, the largest contaminant in cannabis right now, hands down, is a, is a fungicide called microbutanol, which turns into hydrogen cyanide when you smoke it. Um, so, you know, we're creating this negative feedback loop where we falsely fail people for yeast and mold. They apply fungicides to try and re maybe rescue the crop. Those fungicides preferentially extract in these vaporization pens, and the cycle repeats itself. So um, we're trying to get DNA-based methods in there to clean all this up and say, look, if there's, if there's a pathogenic microbe, yes, let's fail it, and we're going to use the most sensitive tool in the world to ever find it. But if there is a beneficial microbe like you might find on your cheese, you know, we're not going to fail that unless it's a problem with inhalation. Uh, you know, the different routes of administration with cannabis have to be considered. So um, that's really the, 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 the main issue why these Petri film systems uh, need to go is they're, they're, in our mind, they are security theater and it's just a ceremonial test. Okay. So the, so qPCR is much more specific by using DNA. Now walk us through how that process works. So typically um, they will homogenize a certain amount of cannabis flower in, in a, a broth. Um, 
usually it's a gram or a quarter gram, depending on where you are. I think sometimes in Canada it has to be like an absurd amount. Um, but uh, even a gram, you take that, you put it in a broth that bugs might grow in. You, you, you basically homogenize that flour to get all the microbes off of it. You don't pulverize it or freeze it in liquid nitrogen because that will kill the bugs. Um, but you do get it enough so they're solubilized. Uh, in the case of PCR, you, you extract the DNA and then and then run a PCR reaction that has a fluorescent probe that tells you how much DNA is there. In the case of uh, plating on a dish, you put it on a petri dish and let it sit for 48 hours. I think Colorado expanded that to 60 hours because they were finding they weren't picking up enough stuff. Um, the, the unique thing about doing this with DNA is that anyone in your audience who's um, involved in, in microbiome work will understand that there is this region of the genome that all living things share, and they're called ribosomal DNA operons. Now, if you don't have one of these things, you're probably a virus, but um, these things are throughout the tree of life. This is how we hang genomes on the tree of life, is we sequence their ITS regions, and that tells you what they are. So what is this region? Well, this region is um, a region that you can segregate because there's highly conserved sequences where you can pick a set of primers that will give you all yeast and mold, but the regions between those primers are hypervariable, and that's what helps you identify them. So we use quantitative PCR to measure all yeast and mold fungal load, and then we use a different quantitative PCR that's going after a region known as the 16S region that goes for all bacterial load. And those two tests can give us total aerobic bacteria counts and total um, yeast and mold counts. If we then need to understand what that load is, after we get a qPCR you know, quantitation, uh, we can then sequence those PCR products and get a microbiome report that tells you, okay, you have you know, 10% aspergillus, you have some penicillium citrum, you have some uh, trichoderm hazarium. Uh, you, you can get a perfect picture of everything that's there. Um, that is extraordinarily helpful, particularly when you, um, when you take that tool and you apply it directly off the plant, you see what's actually living on the plant. The interesting thing is, when you take that same tool and apply it after you've grown it on a petri film, you see a completely different picture emerge. And that's what scared us the most when we started looking at these petri films, because we've not seen a lot of people do this. But when you look at a before and after growth with these petri films, uh, you see the entire thing change on you. And so this, this is very reminiscent of like a Heisenberg uncertainty machine. Your act of monitoring the health risk is actually altering the health risk. And so you should throw it out and go off measuring the stuff directly on the plant. Um, and that's kind of what we've been publishing on and pushing and trying to educate people on. But it's uh, it's definitely a hard stone to overturn. It's been, uh, the, 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 the auger films have been used for, you know, half a century and, and uh, old habits die hard. Now, yeah, it's, it's easy to go back to legacy. That seems to come up um, quite a bit. Going back to a system that they've used for, you know, however long and rely on it and, and no one really questions the 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 deeper meaning or the potential ramifications of the thing that it's not discovering. So what kind of um, what kind of thought process does it take to get people headed more in that direction? I guess especially the regulation. So that's a great question. And, and the thing that I think has taken the most traction is, is demonstrating in the case of cannabis, there are some unique microbes that um, tend to show up. We tend to see a lot of uh, aspergillus. Uh, there's been at least nine cases of aspergillosis um, fatalities documented in the literature for cannabis, which people are kind of shocked when I tell them that. They always hear that no one's ever died from cannabis. It's not true. People have died, not necessarily from the plant, but from what grows on it. Uh, and this usually ends up in something known as aspergillosis. I'm probably pronouncing that wrong, but it's uh, it's an inflammation in the lungs, and it's a fungal infection in the lungs, and it has a 50% fatality rate. 
the other the other infections we've seen are cryptococcal meningitis infections, which also have a very high fatality rate. They're also um, prominent in immunocompromised patients, like the HIV um, population, which is what really kickstarted Prop 64 in California. We also see um, occasional E. coli and Salmonella uh, events, and these are uh, these can give fevers uh, in people, which is not good for anyone who's epileptic. A lot of uh, epilepsy is triggered by um, by a febrile uh, event or a raising of, of temperature in the body, uh, and a lot of epilepsy kids are using these oils. And so, uh, and then the last one uh, that has shown up on uh, on occasion is uh, Clostridium botulinum, which makes Botox. And this is an oil-loving anaerobe. Uh, so we don't really know to the extent these organisms are, are creating mycotoxins on the cannabis plant, but if they are, they're probably getting preferentially enriched in the extraction process that, that could lead to putting Botox into pens, right? So none of that sounds very uh, fun or healthy. And so when you recognize you've got a mixture of anaerobes and you've got a mixture of filamentaceous fungi, and then you also have bacteria involved, you have to start asking, do the platforms we have properly differentiate these things? And the answer is no. Uh, we find that bacteria frequently grow on the yeast and mold plates. We find that Clostridium doesn't grow very well on those plates, even though it's there because it's an anaerobe. Um, and uh, it does grow in some other more uh, less aerobic cartridges that we've seen in the field. Um, and then it, the, the cryptococcal ones are still a little bit – we had one case happen in California very recently, and they traced it back to one, one particular dispensary in Bakersfield. But um, these these are still – uh, it's still a bit unknown, and so we've tried to show people that the methods we have in place are actually going to bias against detecting the organisms that are the biggest threat, and that we should move toward uh, a DNA-based um, based method. What usually um, gets thrown back at you is, well, you can't tell whether the DNA is live or dead, and the guys in the grows love to just irradiate this stuff or heat it or microwave it or hydrogen peroxide treat it, do something to kill the viability of the organisms. And while that's recommended and probably helpful, it does it does alter the, the chemistry of the cannabinoids, and it also has um, implications in terms of, well, if the microbes were there at one point, and they, they could have been making these mycotoxins that we're worried about. And so if, if you're going to live with that, you have to have really, really accurate mycotoxin testing, which is still something that is being worked out in the cannabis field. So I, I think what we're finding is many of the regulators are seeing, in fact, California figured this out. They've been doing it the longest, and they just said, forget it. We're going to do species-specific testing uh, because the, the non-specific testing is creating too much um, non-concordance lab-to-lab, and we can never get anything to pass. And if we if we just dial in on – they dialed in on six species, E. coli, salmonella, and four aspergillus species to make sure that you could, you could detect. And there's really no other way to do that other than with DNA. What do you, what do you think it is that – that led in that direction. I mean, you know, we're, we mentioned earlier, you know, going from a, you know, the, the old PCR methods with a, a Petri dish and to, you know, you know, current testing with um, leading to very specific information, that, as you said, that California is doing. What, what do you think it is that causes the, the holdup and, oh, well, let's use this, this method that we kind of know about rather than using what we um, think is right? Well, or no, I'd, love to, right. I'd love to wish it was because they read some of our papers, but I, I have a feeling it's not that. It's because uh, Ca California is just the hotbed of biotech. I mean, PCR was invented out there by Kerry Mullis. You've got San Diego and the Bay Area, which are both um, genomic uh, hotbeds. Um, and there have been um, a fair number of other papers that have corroborated our work in the field um, coming out of, uh, I think the Thompson work came out of UCSD. 
um, where they had found a, two two cancer patients succumb to microbial infections in the lungs. Uh, you know, I think it was two years ago, and they went about and sequenced the patient. Uh, biopsy and confirmed that those microbes were in fact infectious. And so there's, there's been, a, I, I think, a um, kind of a perfect storm of different events from papers getting published both locally and that being a very um, uh, biotech-centered state that they um, instantly jumped onto regs that seem to be more anchored in clinical risk. Okay. Yeah, that's, um, it's always interesting to see how we move into a new direction with, you know, especially with something regulated, you know, where safety is concerned. Yeah, it's it's not happening in every state. I think what we found is um, many of the states have just uh, adopted um, what's in the food industry because they the regulations perhaps had to happen so quickly due to the way the rate at which these things voted. So they superimposed some of the food industry work on this, which is a fine place to start. But um, you're not inhaling your food. You're not turning it into an oil. You're not putting it through an extraction system. You know, there's the, the, the routes of administration with cannabis are pretty vast. You have to think about it a little bit more as a drug. And um, when you start thinking about that, you recognize there's different infection risks. And like this aspergillosis thing, no one wants aspergillosis in the food system because of the mycotoxin it produces. But the, it's, it's very rarely con- a concern for inhalation. In the case of inhalation, if you in- inhale those spores, those spores are usually um, pasteurization resistant, and so they can they might be able to get through a vaporizer and end up in your lungs, and particularly an immunocompromised patient. And that's what they're actually uh, there's a case in Canada um, published by Remington et al. Uh, where this happened to a diabetic patient up there who luckily survived, but it was a case where they found the aspergillus in the lung and they found it in the vaporizer, and uh, they were kind of able to they had the smoking gun where yeah this is where it came from. Wow, that's uh, that's incredible. So, Kevin, what what else does medical genomics do? So, we also do um, sequencing of the plant's genome outside of the microbiome, and that's usually done for um, breeders to understand who else to breed with and whether the plant is inbred or outbred, but it's lately being done quite a bit to uh, to establish some defensive intellectual property uh, against many cannabis patents that have been emerging. So, um, since August 2015, several cannabis patents have emerged. The USPTO will issue you patents on cannabis. They will not issue trademarks on it, and you can't enforce any of those patents until a federal legalization event happens. But nevertheless, people are collecting them today, and they're very, very broad. So many of the of the people in the industry have recognized, sequence your plant and uh, publish it and prove that it existed at this time. So you build a prior art defense against um, uh, against any submarine patents that might emerge in the future. And so we do all this work by hashing and stashing those genomes on the Dash blockchain at the moment. We were running it on Bitcoin for a while, but it got uh, the, the scale-up happened, and uh, we couldn't really afford to do $20 transactions on Bitcoin for each of these. And so we switched over to Dash, and Dash actually funded that transition, which was very kind of them. Um, they have this treasury model that allows them to um, fund uh, you know, high-volume projects that might give them more Dash exposure. And so... We um, we jumped onto their blockchain, which is faster and cheaper, and uh, we've been uh, registering strains there ever since. Um, it's important to know we do not put the whole genome on a blockchain that would not fit. It might fit in their future Dash drive, but at the moment we're just putting a hash of that sequence, and that gives us a timestamp that they can point to. Uh, and that's important for our customers because if we get annihilated or go out of business or get bought by some big evil corporation, um, they still have a database that's not run by somebody else. That's run kind of by a decentralized network that can say, hey, my timestamp existed here even though medicinal genomics doesn't exist anymore. So um, it's just a 
an added service we believe is the right thing to do when it comes to data management is that you should be thinking about disaster resistant mechanisms to keep um, data that needs to persist for 20 years around. Interesting. So um, you mentioned the time step with the hash. What other specifics are involved with that? So the other specifics are sequencing the plant. Um, we either do a whole genome sequencing assay, and to do this, we can't take flour or, or stuff into the into our facility. We're in Massachusetts. You can't send cannabis across state lines unless it's a stalk and it's been sterilized with isopropanol. It has no cannabinoids. It isn't viable. Uh, so you can send us that or DNA, and we'll sequence you the whole genome or 3 million bases that are predominantly focused on 30 core genes in the cannabinoid and terpene synthase pathway. And with that information, you can get a fingerprint for the plant. You take that, that, that list of SNPs, and then you just hash it with SHA-256 into a, into a hash, submit that in the op return of a transaction, and then it is locked into that transaction time block for, for hopefully uh, at least 20 years. And uh, that's, uh, that's the intent for customers to ensure that we have a plan to keep the proof of their data viable for the length of a, of a sort of a patent window, if you will. And, uh, you know, not all startups can guarantee uh, people that they'll be around in 20 years. That's just uh, the odds aren't there uh, in anyone's favor in the startup world. And so you need to have database plans, we believe, that, that transcend that. Okay. Now, I don't want to go like completely into the world of uh, speculation here, but what what kind of things are you seeing to eventually move from um, out of the, the patent phase into uh, trademark phasing? So that's an interesting point. I mean, the trademarks, I've not thought deeply about where it will go with trademarking. Right now, people are are trying to trademark things at the state level. You can still do that. Uh, like in California, you could probably pursue a, a state trademark. Um, I haven't been as... Um, worried about trademark because it seems easier to navigate around by just changing a few letters here and there and, and it's it's not as if it, it it it's not as prohibitory i think when patents are what scare me a hell of a lot more than the trademarks um and there's jurisdictional um uh shopping that you can do on that front in canada and other places and canada is a very significant market so i've i've generally not been as concerned about trademark as i have been about about the patent landscape because the the patents that get granted are almost like granting patents across, uh, you know, thousands of words as opposed to a trademark is like one or two. <laughs> um, I mean, right now the patents that exist cover any strain that makes all THC or that makes THC and CBD. If you make more than like a couple percent of THC and CBD in your plant, one group owns them all. And that is an enormous swath of, of plants, whereas a trademark might have Coca-Cola in it, and you can change it to, to, to Kinky Cola or something, and, and perhaps uh, and perhaps get around it. Uh, but uh, it's 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 not that way in the, in the patent world. It's a little bit more. Um, of course, the time frames are shorter, but you know, a twenty-year time frame is enough to to prevent a business from getting going if they're actually stepping out of patent. So, um, yeah, I, I have a hard time predicting where uh, where trademark law is going to go in that field. But uh, the, the patent law is clearly here and now, and people are collecting them, and they have sharp teeth. Interesting. So I want to take a just a little bit of a step back. What are some um, what are some other reasons for having that proof of data for for um, growers and how are they using that information? So some of them will use it to want. So if if you sequence, let's say, like twelve a dozen strains for a particular grower, and uh, you can demonstrate. You can compare them to everything else in our database and show themselves, okay, you have a real enrichment for strains that are of this genetic flavor, and you're completely void of ones over here. 
uh, you should perhaps get in touch with the people over here and, and start breathing into those voids so that you can find novel material. Uh, and so in, in many ways, it's a genomics LinkedIn for people who want to breed cannabis strains, uh, hemp or cannabis. We sequence a lot of hemp lines as well. Um, that's one detail that you can get. The other detail that's really important um, is the heterozygosity level of the plant. So the heterozygosity level is the difference between the mother and the father genome. In cannabis, they can be very far apart. They can be like one letter in a hundred can be uh, can be mutated or, or different. In humans, it's like one in a thousand, right? So these are almost like chimps and humans being able to have productive offspring. So you get a wide spectrum of plants. Um, well, whenever you cross a plant and you want to make seeds from it, um, you have to worry about the fact that those seeds could be, you know, half chimpanzee and half human. I mean, they can be really, really diverse in their phenotype. And so what people like to do is they like to stabilize their seeds uh, or their plants, and they like to backcross them a little bit. Uh, and they like to do that to a point where they know they're going to be stable. And so we can measure that heterozygosity difference in the plant. So folks can say, okay, I started off with my F1, and this generation has a really high heterozygosity level. I want to breed this until it becomes more homozygous, then make seeds, and then ship those seeds because those seeds are going to be more stable and produce the same phenotype. And um, that's that's a, a bit of information the cannabis field hasn't had uh, until genomics came about. Now they can measure the heterozygosity with fine precision and know if their breeding directions are, are moving in uh, to produce a more stable set of seeds. Um, and then the final thing is just um, we are collecting terpene and cannabinoid information to the extent people hand it to us and putting this in Canopedia. And we're, ultimately, this will become a, a whole genome association project where you can begin to associate certain variants in your data with high limonene expression or high terpenylene expression or, or, you know, name your favorite terpene. But we are sequencing all the genes in the cannabinoid and terpene synthase pathway. I shouldn't say all, most of them. I'm sure there's a, there's a bunch that are probably undiscovered at the moment, but at least 30 of them. And uh, when we track those SNPs with the chemotype that's expressed, over time, we're going, to, we're going to get this sort of distributed consensus of what SNPs actually drive um, the, the expression event. And then those can be utilized as, as very, very cheap markers for what's known as like marker-assisted selection or, or rapid breeding, where you plant seeds, you screen them genetically before they even mature, and you call the ones that don't match what you're looking for. Um, and this is t typically how you've seen uh, the genomics ag revolution occur, is that they, they first hunt for the genetic markers that predict the, the desired phenotype, and then they apply that screen not at maturity date, but at the earliest date possible when the seeds come out of the ground. That way you can accelerate your breeding operation, uh, and it's no longer contingent on the maturation length of the plant. You don't have to wait for them to be fully mature and do a scratch and sniff uh, screen. You can, you can screen for the genetics uh, week one. Uh, Syngenta, Monsanto, you know, all of these um, hybrid, all, all, of these, all of these companies that, that employ uh, genomic um, genomics and agriculture have moved on to this type of, type of marker-assisted selection. And so Canopedia is going to be a tool that distills that type of information because we're, we're, we're collecting far more information than we need to just fingerprint the plant. The three megabases of sequence we have is way overkill for that function alone. It's really meant to give you a good marker set that you can track um, these, uh, you can pin genotypes to phenotypes over time. What other, um, what other ramifications does that have with, with the with speeding up the process and, and making, um, you know, identity so much more um, definable? Well, 
now that we've been in this a few years, we've identified a few markers already, and um, this allows for an interesting um, paradigm shift in where, you know, right now DNA sequencing is fairly centralized. You have to have some, some uh, equipment and some expense to run DNA sequencing today. That's not going to be the case in a couple of years. We're going to see USB drives, DNA sequencers from like Oxford, and, um, and there's a you know, host of other technologies that are, that are maturing for that. What we've been doing in the meantime is building these color metric PCR tests that just change color if you can find a SNP. And we've designed this now to pick up whether the, the plant is male or female. So you could do this in the field, basically, with an iPhone and a USB-connected PCR device. There's a, a company called Mini PCR makes $600 USB PCR devices, which are really cool. Um, we've now made markers for powdery mildew detection for a host of different plant pathogens, if you want to screen for those. And we've also made them for picking up CBD and THC. These are the, the compounds in the plant that um, uh, tend to be most medicinally sought after. And we know the genetics that drive that now. And so we can put those into portable color metric testing tools uh, so people can screen them in the field. Um, so that's one change that's already happening from, from the genomic space. And uh, there's bound to be many more that we haven't thought of. What do you think is kind of on the forefront of um, those things that we haven't quite thought of yet? Well, I think we're going to see, um, once we get a better reference, uh, and this is what's really critical right now, we have actually a DASH proposal in right now to try and make a better reference. So if there's any DASH masternode owners out there, uh, uh, hear me out on this. But once we have a better cannabis reference, the reference that we sequenced back in 2011, the technology that we had back then left it in 100,000 pieces. So the genome's still a little fragmented for anyone's um, desire. Uh, the tools today with these longer read length tools are going to are going to put that all together in a nice perfect chromosomal map. And once we have that, um, we can begin to think about epigenetics. Epigenetics is looking at methylation on the plant, and we're pretty confident that that is what's going on with hermaphroditism plant. There is a tendency for the cannabis plant to hermaphrodite. So um, right now it, 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 it makes either male or female plants and you only want the females to make flowers. The males will pollinate those and make seeds and that destroys your crop from, for all medicinal purposes. They don't want seeds around. So there's always this fight of getting rid of males and you can feminize seeds and do all these tricks, but there's always a risk um, that you can get hermaphrodites that pop up again. We think that that, that tendency to hermaphrodite is actually an epi epigenetic effect. And that really can't be, ta I don't think it's easy to tackle unless you have a really good DNA reference genome that you could overlay the methylation picture on. And then we can under begin to understand, okay, what are the genetic traits that predict a plant's pr propensity to hermaphrodite on you? And if you know those, you will screen those out very, very quickly because you just can't have these, these large monocultures. They may have a million square feet or more up in Canada growing, and if something hermes on you up there and, and pollinates uh, a huge grow, it is, it is a tremendous loss, and there's not a lot of crop insurance right now in this field. And so that's one area that I think is going to be hopefully cracked in the next five years. That's, a, that's very interesting. Kevin, is there anything that you can think of that you may want our listeners to know that maybe I haven't asked? Uh, sure. So in, um, uh, in October, we have a conference that actually speaks a lot about this. It's called CANMED. It's being held at UCLA. Uh, it's probably 1,500 people, 30% physician attended. It's very medically oriented. There's CME credits. It's at UCLA on October 22nd to 24th. So if people want to learn more about cannabis genetics and cannabis genomics, um, that's the uh, that's the event of the year I'd, I recommend everyone go to, and uh, we can hopefully share much more of this in, in, in finer detail at that event. Yeah, definitely. 
Um, what's the best place to find out more about you and uh, what you do in your companies? Uh, so I'm usually active on Facebook, Steemit, MeWe, uh, Twitter, a bunch of places, but but uh, Medicinal Genomics is probably the best web, best anchoring site to find me at, um, and Canopedia spelled with a K is is a uh, is another one. Okay, yeah, very good. Any final thoughts before we wrap up today, Kevin? Uh, only that I would encourage everybody to look into um, cannabis genetics. It is an easy topic to laugh at, but it is honestly uh, it is honestly helping a tremendous number of people when you look at the opiate epidemic and cancer. So. Don't underestimate the power of this plant. Great. Kevin, thank you so much for joining us today. All right. Thank you as well. I very much appreciate it. Definitely. Kevin McKernan with Canopedia.net. Coming to Dallas, Texas, September 14th, 15th, and 16th, 2018, the Blockchain and Future Tech Expo. This is going to be a gigantic conference of over 5,000 people. We're going to be talking about blockchain and its applications. We're going to be talking about quantum computing, cybersecurity, artificial intelligence, and several other future technologies that are poised to and actually changing our lives as we speak. Here's why you should attend. As you may know, early adopters are the ones that investigated and profited from things like the gold rush in the 1800s, from the dot-com boom in the 1990s, from the internet boom in 2005, from the smartphone explosion in 2007, from the real estate boom that ended in 2008, and of course, from the Bitcoin boom that started in 2012. Early adopters act now. They don't wait till later. They go out west first in their covered wagons. They find the biggest gold nuggets. If you consider yourself an early adopter and you want to find the biggest nuggets, then you owe it to yourself to attend this upcoming conference. Blockchain is going to affect how we control and store our medical data, how we send money around the world, how we bank, and more. But artificial intelligence, quantum computing, and cybersecurity will play a pivotal role in our lives as well. And that's why our next event, September 14th to the 16th at the Dallas Convention Center, is going to have not only 5,000 plus attendees, but will showcase blockchain, AI, cybersecurity, quantum computing, and more. You want to get in on the coming gold rush of future tech and opportunity as an early adopter. Don't be left out. To register, go to bftexpo.com. That's blockchainfuturetechexpo.com. Thank you. You have been listening to Almost Here, Around the Corner Future Technology Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Subscribe to this podcast, post a review, to discover more future technologies that are poised to transform our lives for better or worse, such as Bitcoin, artificial intelligence, 3D printing, blockchain, virtual reality, and more.